On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Timothy George about Baptist identity. So we cover topics like what are the defining characteristics of 17th century Baptist? And can we consider 17th century Baptist reform? What do we think of the mode of immersion when it comes to baptism? Why is it important? And how can Baptists be small c Catholic given their baptismal stance? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, you can hit us up Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet. We think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And we are a podcast that's devoted to serious thinking for a serious church. But we don't want to just think seriously. We want to think with particular virtues. So we've endeavored as a podcast and as an online presence to promote Uh, a type of intellectual culture that prizes things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. And today I am just honored and delighted to introduce you all to Dr. Timothy George, who I think is a model of all those things. So when I think of people in my own Baptist Reform sort of tradition that model uh, a Christian way of thinking and doing it with uh, particular rigor and care and pastoral sensitivities, I think of Dr. George. So I think he has done um, probably more than, than uh, I mean, I can't think of anybody off the top of my head in my own life who's alive right now in contemporary time that has done more uh, to, to help Reformed Baptist thinking than him and give it life and give it passion, give it a certain ecumenicism that... Uh, oftentimes is lacking, I think, in Baptist life. So I really am super excited to talk with him. So Dr. George, I imagine most of our listeners know who you are, but I'd still love it if you gave me a little bit of a bio on what you're doing right now, where you're at, and then what is it that drew you to thinking just about Baptist identity and Baptist history in general. I mean, this may have been, you know, 30 plus years ago that that drew you there, but I'd still love to hear that origin story of what got you interested in it. Well, I'm a native of Chattanooga, Tennessee. I grew up there. I majored in history at the University of Tennessee in Chattanooga. And then I went to Harvard Divinity School, where I studied for seven years, doing a master's and then a doctoral degree. Uh, I grew up as a Baptist, a Southern Baptist. You'd probably call me a fundamentalist Baptist. Uh, I don't know what that meant or if that was a word I would have used at the time, but I was taught to believe the Bible, that Jesus loved me and died on the cross for my sins and things like that that I still believe today. So I'm grateful for that heritage. Now, the one thing that heritage didn't really give me was a deep rootage in my own Baptist history. I kind of learned that when I really began to study the Reformation. I'm a Reformation historian by training, and as I began to delve into the Reformers and their writings and to think, you know, I'm a Baptist too, well, maybe I should quit being a Baptist and just be a, a Reformer. Well, no, I discovered as I went deeper that I didn't have to do that, that the Baptist tradition has deep roots in the Reformation. We haven't always understood it or expressed it maybe in the right way, Uh, but I wanted to reclaim that, and I wanted to enter into it myself. And so that drew me uh, through the study of Calvin and the Calvinists and the Puritans and people like that into uh, the beginnings of the Baptist movement in the 17th century. That's a short answer. 
Thank you. So, so Dr. George, let's start there with the historical question. You mentioned that Baptists are rooted um, in the Protestant Reformation, and I know it's probably difficult to even think about giving a, a brief overview of Baptist origins because there's so much uh, behind the story. But uh, as brief as possible, tell us how Baptists kind of came out of that Reformation heritage. The way that story is usually told is to say that there are two separable beginnings of the Baptist movement in the early 17th century, both of them related to what we might call radical Puritanism, this understanding of the church that sought to reform it on the basis of the Word of God. Uh, Yes, going back to the great affirmations of the Reformation, uh, Luther, Calvin, Cranmer, the others— but also recognizing that while they were wonderful champions of the gospel and of the truth, there were some things they probably missed, they didn't get right. And this was how the Baptist experience came into being in the 17th century, in these two separable beginnings. One, what are usually called, and I have to put these names in quotation marks because these are not terms the people themselves used at the time, general Baptists, who tended to be more Arminian in their theology, teaching a doctrine of universal redemption, and then the particular Baptists, those who were more Calvinistic, who emphasized the God's uh, decision in election and uh, taught that Christ had died in a distinctive way for the elect. They were called particular Baptists. And these two streams had different beginnings, and they coursed through history in different ways until quite a bit later, actually, uh, into the 18th, 19th century, they eventually merged together into what became the Baptist Union of Great Britain. But that didn't happen until well into the 19th century. So we have to talk about these two streams. I think Baptists today have something to learn from both. But I identify, because I believe the particular Baptist tradition understood more clearly what the gospel was and how it applied to the church. And so uh, that's where I would place myself. When we talk about there's, you know, these streams coming from the Protestant Reformation, I think at least in contemporary, I don't know, literature and popular talk, there's this idea of this Reformed Baptist. There's, you can be a Reformed Baptist or you can be a, a normal Baptist. And that almost tracks with, I think, the particular general distinction to some degree. When is it that people started calling the more Calvinistic Baptist, Reformed Baptist? And is it right to call even the 17th century Baptist, Reformed Baptist in any sense? Is that a, a helpful term or not? Well, I myself use it, so I must think it has some validity. But we should put, we should put these terms in quotation marks and when we apply them particularly to the 17th century. Those, those were not terms they used for themselves. Uh, in fact, the word Baptist itself was not a term that they would use. We shouldn't think that they printed stationery with Baptist label on it or put a sign outside their meeting house, this is the Baptist Church of Grantham. No, they didn't do anything like that. Uh, They came out of radical Puritan, you might say, a form of congregationalism. And over time, they came to question the practice widespread among Catholics and Protestants alike of infant baptism. They did so on the basis of their understanding of the scriptures and of ecclesiology. And so in time, they became known as Baptists. As best I can tell, The word Baptist was first used for these people in around the 1650s by Quakers. 
and later the Baptists came to embrace the term themselves, kind of like the word Christian, Christianoi, in the book of Acts, uh, used several times to describe uh, the early believers. But they didn't go around calling themselves Christians until quite a bit later. Same thing with the Baptist in England. Now, you ask about the term Reformed Baptist. It's a fairly recent term. Uh, my best understanding is that it originated in the really the 1950s in the phenomenal ministry of Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a great pastor and preacher in London for many years and wrote many things. Uh, and there were he attracted a lot of people. Uh, for example, there, there's a large segment of Anglicans who are Martin Lloyd-Jones disciples. I think of my friend, the late J.I. Packer, as being maybe chief among them. Uh, they were Jonesites, but they were also so Anglicans. And there, likewise, there were some Presbyterians in that same category. And believe it or not, there were some Baptists, too, who understood the way Dr. Lloyd-Jones presented the gospel, the doctrines of grace, uh, to be in keeping with Scripture. And so they, were, they would go to his Bible studies and in time begin to have fellowship together and, and form communities of faith, uh, enter into covenant with one another. And these are the people who took the name to themselves, Reformed Baptists, and began to be called that by other people too. There's nothing magical about that term or any of these terms we're using. Uh, I'm a Platonist on most things, uh, but I'm a nominalist when it comes to labels. Uh, we can call ourselves different names and say what we mean by it, and th that should be the way we go. So am I a Reformed Baptist? I'm happy to call myself that. I'm not a member of a church or denomination that uses that term. By, by Reformed Baptist, what I mean is I believe uh, the gospel. I believe the doctrines of grace are integral to the gospel. Uh, to a clear understanding of the gospel, uh, and and that's a part of the wider Reformed charism to the church, this gift of, of talking about the gospel. Sometimes it's talked about in terms of the five points of Calvinism. It's probably best to avoid that language, uh, since it's subject to all kinds of misunderstanding. But uh, there were certain moments in history where these doctrines were put forth, I think, with great clarity. One was the Synod of Dort, uh, which happened in Holland in 1618 and 19. Uh, in England, the Westminster Confession. And the early particular Baptist confessions, I think especially of the 1644 London Confession of Faith and the 1689 Second London Confession of Faith closely modeled on Westminster. These were particular articulations of the doctrines of grace. Now, there's more to be said about reform than just the doctrines of grace. It has to do with the disciplined life of faith. It has to do with how we organize the church. It has to do with what we make priorities in worship. There are lots of implications of that, but I think that's right there at the heart of it. Hmm. Dr. George, if you don't mind, let's back back up to the 17th century Baptists, if you don't mind, unless you have four different um, defining characteristics of, of 17th century Baptists, canonical, covenantal, congregational, and Calvinistic. If you don't mind, maybe unpack each one of those defining characteristics for us and tell us what you mean by each. Well, I use that alliteration just as a way of trying to bring together in a clear, understandable way what some of those main features were. What do I mean by uh, canonical? Well, I mean scriptural. I mean, we follow the canon of Holy Scripture, and here again we're in keeping with the Reformation. Uh, the Council of Trent 
set forth a longer list of books believed to be inspired and canonical. Uh, Protestants have uh, a different view. We follow in the early church the work of St. Jerome, uh, and there are many reasons for this on canonicity, but when I say canonical, I believe we have, a, we have an external uh, authority in the Holy Scriptures, the Word of God. We're not making this up out of our own imagination. Uh, there is an, if you want to use this word, philosophical word, objectivity to the faith that is reflected in God's revealed word in the Bible, which I take to be both inspired and inerrant. And uh, I, that's what I mean by canonical. So by covenantal, uh, covenant is one of the most important words used in Re- Reformation theology in the 16th and 17th century. It's used a lot more, for example, than the word uh Baptism is used. Uh, covenantal refers in the first place that God has entered into a covenant, uh, the covenant fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Uh, it is a covenant that God has made to give salvation by grace through faith to all who believe in the Messiah. Uh, this did not originate with the New Testament. And so this is one reason why I'm a Reformed Baptist, as opposed to some other understandings of the Baptist movement. Uh, I think we, we, we go back to what God was doing in the Old Testament. There's one and only one way of salvation that God has provided for all peoples everywhere, and that is through grace and faith in Jesus the Messiah. And so Abraham is a big figure here in the Old Testament. Uh, Abraham... Uh, received a promise to him and to his seed. But um, that seed in the scripture is spoken of in a diverse way, in a twofold way. One according to the flesh, those are the people literally descended from Abraham, and one based on faith. And so uh, covenantal in the sense that this covenant, which originates in a covenant of grace in eternity, comes to fulfillment in the creation of a people in history, and in time. And this eventually comes to be applied to the the church covenant, because the church covenant is a local manifestation, a reflection of the covenant that God has made in eternity with his people. Now, the third word I used was congregational. Uh, Baptists are not the only Congregationalists. In fact, there's a group, a, a church, that, no, that uses that as, as its basic name. Uh, Baptists, however, belonged to what was called in the 17th century the Congregational Way. Uh, <coughs> they described themselves as uh, a company of visible saints, called and separated from the world to the visible profession of the gospel. And the congregation was uh, something that was to be owned by those who professed faith in Jesus Christ and followed him all the way in believers' baptism. Uh, there were they were not saying by this that this these are the only Christians, because Baptists had a kind of ecumenical openness even in the 17th century to others in different denominations who trusted in Christ and followed him. Uh, but this was an understanding of the local church congregational, in which the threefold office of Jesus Christ as prophet, priest, and king was to be manifested in the various offices and corporate uh, worship and sanctification of the gathered congregation. 
Now, the last word I used was Calvinistic, and maybe the most controversial of them all are Baptist Calvinists. As I say in in an article I've written for uh, John Piper uh, uh, called Our Baptist Reformed, uh, this is what might be called by the French une question mal posé, a badly put question. Because, again, we're skipping over centuries and categories that don't make a lot of sense uh, if, if you're not in the thick of it. There are some ways in which Baptists are not Calvinists. Let me say that up front. Uh, Calvinist was a pedo-Baptist. He not only practiced infant baptism, he gave in the Institutes uh, Book 4 a strong justification for it, an argument for it. He was a pedo-Baptist. Baptists are credo-Baptists, that is, uh, we believe baptism is for those who personally believe in Jesus Christ and profess their faith openly to all who hear. Uh, On church governance, Calvin was a Presbyterian. Baptists don't find Presbyterianism clearly spelled out in the Bible the way some Calvinists do. That's why Baptists are Congregationalists. And maybe most importantly, on differences, uh, Calvin believed that the civil magistrate had a religious duty to enforce both tables of the law, punishing heresy and rooting it out by capital punishment if necessary. Baptists, on the other hand, balked at that and are advocates of religious freedom for all. So these are pretty fundamental things. You might say, how in the world could anybody think Baptists would be a Calvinist? Well, as Some scholars have shown recently uh, Calvinism is not a monolithic term or historical reality. It cannot be equated with the work of one person, even as great as John Calvin was, much less the work of a discrete denomination. Uh, One scholar, uh, John Balserek, has said that as a living body of doctrines, I like that way of putting it, a living body of doctrines, Calvinism exhibits a great deal of development, diversity, and ambiguity. And, of course, the same could be said about Baptists. So when I say that Baptists are Calvinist, I have in mind that we follow, Reformed Baptists follow the articulation of doctrines of the doctrines of grace that were set forth uh, by John Calvin and those who followed him with great clarity, and that have been championed by Baptists through the centuries. I'm thinking especially now of a figure like Charles Haddon Spurgeon in the 19th century, who who was not ashamed to call himself a Calvinist, but who, on all the points where I've mentioned of difference, would, would side with, uh, with the Baptists rather than with those who followed Calvin more literally and strictly. So I think it's a useful term, uh, if, we, if you can allow me as much time as you guys have on the podcast to define it. But we get into trouble sometimes when we uh, use shorthand terms. And of course, any of these words can become terms of abuse toward other people. And I try to avoid that as much as possible. There's a couple of things you mentioned in there that I, I'd be interested in asking you about. But one of those, I mean, is just the basic distinction that Baptists are credo-Baptists. So one thing you say in this article is that baptism for believers only was simply the liturgical enactment of justification by faith alone. I thought that was interesting and helpful because it seems that at least on our most you know, reform models— Baptism is linked to things like covenantal promise, 
Whereas you are clearly saying it, this is an enactment of justification. So maybe tease that that out the, that difference out. Why is it that Baptists would think that baptism is linked to that and not to promise? Or are these, it's not necessarily mutually exclusive, but the way we understand promise is a little bit different. Yeah, I think the latter way of putting it is how I would like to say it. I mean, uh, I love Luther. Uh, he's probably my favorite theologian of all time. I've got almost all of his works in my library. I read them fairly regularly. But uh, Luther missed some things. He missed uh, some big things. And one of the things I think he missed was the application of his own doctrine of justification by faith alone to the life of the church. Uh, he was a strong advocate of infant baptism. Now, he justified infant baptism in a very interesting way. I've sometimes said, if I were to believe in infant baptism, I would be a Lutheran rather than a Presbyterian. Why? Because Luther linked faith with the baptism of the infant. And so that's a key point that is lost in a more Presbyterian model, where what really matters is belonging to the covenanted community, the faith of the parents, or the faith of the community. Whereas Luther keeps faith associated directly with the infant through his, I don't accept it, but his interesting doctrine of infant faith, what he called fides infantium, that God uh, imputes faith to an infant. Uh, now, while I don't accept that, I appreciate his effort to keep faith together with baptism, which is really the Baptist idea. And so the place where justification comes in is this is the God's declaration that we are uh, pardoned of our sins. We experience the forgiveness of sins. And it's in response to that that we follow Jesus Christ in baptism. That seems to me a New Testament way of talking about it. Every time where baptism in the New Testament is done, I don't accept this idea that the household baptisms are included infants and so forth. Every time that I can see clearly baptism is done, it's just like we read about the eunuch who was baptized by Philip. Uh, see, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? If you believe with all your heart, you may. That's the New Testament pattern, and I think that refers more clearly to an ex the experience of justification, the God's decree of salvation, and the justifying faith that he gives his, believer, his elect who believe in him. That's a more proper way to think about baptism. Now, I don't want to downplay promise or covenant, because that is clearly uh, a part of God's overall redemptive plan in history. As I was saying a moment ago about Abraham, Abra Paul makes this clear, right? Abraham was saved by faith, by believing. Uh, and yet the role in which baptism, or in the Old Testament circumcision, comes to play uh, is a very different one, I think, than sometimes is set forth by those in the Reformed tradition. That's why I'm a Baptist. That's why I'm a credo-Baptist. I just want to go on record and say I feel vindicated, because I've said before, too, that if I was going to be a paedo-Baptist, I would be a Lutheran rather than a Presbyterian, for those same reasons. So I was glad to hear you say that. So let's stick on the on the topic of baptism, but move from the proper candidates um, to, to the proper mode of baptism. Something else you say in this article, you say the very act itself proclaimed its threefold meaning, the washing of the believer's sin in the blood of Jesus, their interest in Jesus's own death and resurrection, 
and the promised resurrection at the return of Christ. So unpack this a little bit for us. I think that this is something that Baptists don't talk about enough, is the importance of the the role that, that mode plays in this whole debate between credo-baptists and paedo-baptists. It seems to me that there's a lot behind the picture that God has given us in baptism of the realities that it signifies. So just talk to us a little bit about what you believe about mode, and do you think Baptists need to emphasize this more uh, in our theological discussions with our brothers and sisters who disagree with us on baptism? The short answer to that is yes. But let me say, this quotation you gave, which I put in the article I did for John Piper's blog, is uh, almost directly word for word from the uh, First London Confession of Faith of 1644. This is how Baptists have thought about baptism uh, through the centuries. And the picture of baptism uh, being immersed under the water indicates by its very act what it means, that is, identification with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, there are other symbolism that can be attributed, for example, to baptizing with the the modality of sprinkling or pouring, like the pouring out of the Spirit. I'm not saying there's there's no uh, way to make that happen, but in the Bible, the way baptism was done was uh, in water, I think lots of water, uh, you know, there's text in John, uh, see, here is much water. What doth hinder us from being baptized? This much water, uh, I think, is a, is a good indication that something is going on there. And so uh, it's interesting historically that the first Baptist, I think both general and particular Baptist, as best I read it, did not practice baptism by immersion. This came up a little later as they went deeper into the scriptures and had contact with others who had embraced that form of baptism. Uh, It's really only in the late 1630s, around 1638 or so, that we have a record of people who began to practice baptism by immersion. And here's a strange thing, and I don't really understand fully myself uh, the, the answer to this. It seems even though these two streams of Baptists, those who were more Calvinistic and those who were less so, let's put it that way, uh, disagreed on many things, but almost at once they both embrace believers' baptism by immersion as the proper biblical model to do it. And this takes on. I mean, to this day, you may somewhere in the world show me a Baptist who baptizes some other way, but I frankly have never seen them or met them. It's almost universal, including people who I would strongly question their theology. I'm talking about radical liberals. If they claim the word Baptist, they're going to baptize by immersion. This emerged in the middle of the 17th century because these Baptists were trying to recapture as clearly as possible what baptism meant in the very earliest Christian community. And so we have insisted, uh, historically, that baptism should be for believers only, and it should be by immersion only. Now, there are some Baptists who immerse three times, triple immersion, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, That's a practice also known in the early church. It's by and large passed out of practice. It's not widely practiced today, but it may be by some. I I would put it this way. If you have to baptize three times, go ahead and do it. Uh, Better than uh, not baptizing by immersion at all. So uh, along these lines of baptism, I think 
at least in my segment of the world, there is a growing sense and desire for the small C Catholic posture, particularly in Baptist life. So I think of younger guys like Luke Stamps and Matt Emerson and Brandon Smith. They're, they're people who are seeking to promote Catholicity in Baptist life. But it seems like the constant sticking point for other traditions is, well, uh, you view my baptism as invalid. Therefore, how can you really be Catholic and promote an ecumenical posture when you say my baptism's invalid? So, and and you talked earlier about how there's this ecumenical openness even in the early Baptists. So maybe it's a twofold question. How did the earliest Baptists think about these issues and other traditions and other modes and practices of baptism? And then how should we think about it as Baptists today? I'm glad you mentioned uh, my friends Matt Emerson and Lucas Stamps. I'm a strong supporter of the work they're doing. I think it's kind of cutting edge, uh, the Center for Baptist Renewal that they have launched. Uh, And what they're trying to do is to open up a discussion about kind of these issues we're talking about today and to reclaim in a way that does in no way, I think, violate our history or our basic uh, beliefs, uh, the Catholicity of the Church. Where does this word Catholic come from? Well, it's not used in the New Testament. It's used for the first time in the Apostolic Fathers, which says, where Jesus Christ is, there is the Catholic Church. Hey, Ecclesia Catholica. And this becomes one of the traditional marks of the Church, emphasized in the Nicene Creed. The Church is one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. Well, I think we can reclaim all four of those words. Why should we not? Why should we let go of a single one of them? Uh, Catholic uh, is not the same as one. There's two different words. The church is one, and the church is Catholic. How can we be Catholic if we do not practice infant baptism, which is practiced by so many other people? Well, let's face the fact that uh, Baptists believe that this is part of the further Reformation that dawned upon God's people in the 16th century. As we read the Bible and dig into what justification means and what the reform of the church means, uh, the reform of baptism is a part of that. And there are many other groups within the wider open Christian community, uh, the church that calls itself a church, who have different practices of baptism that do not comport with, for example, the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, And so uh, these divisions in the church over baptism, we just have to say, in all honesty, hey, look, uh, guys and gals, uh, we're not there yet. We're still working on some of this in terms of seeing eye to eye on what baptism means and how it is to be done, what church membership means and how it is to be enacted. We're not saying by claiming what we believe is a biblical form that we're the only people in the world who have the, the, the true gospel. We believe that God saves people across all kinds of denominations. He's God, after all. He can do what he likes, uh, even without asking our permission. But we do believe that this is a distinctive biblical witness to what the gospel teaches and the implication for baptism. So we want to have fellowship and reach out as widely as we can uh, to all people who believe the gospel, who stand in the historic orthodox, that's another good word, faith, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And uh, there are place, there's places where that fellowship is going to 
be limited. It's not going to be open-ended uh, because uh, Jesus set up a church, and uh, the church is not only invisible— I believe strongly in the invisible church of God's elect, of all all the redeemed of all the ages. But it's also the church down at the corner of 6th and Maple. It's the church around town. And it meets in a certain place. It has certain kind of messy human beings called sinners that go to it. And once we get into that expression of the church, we're going to find lots of room for misunderstanding and disagreement. And we keep working just what Jesus prayed for in John 17 to the Heavenly Father, that his disciples would be one as he and the Father are one so that the world might believe. We haven't reached that yet. Uh, that may be an eschatological reality. We have to wait for the parousia to experience. But anyway, we keep praying for it, and we keep working for it, and I think this honors God. Hmm. It, it seems to me there's a, a bit of a um, some momentum behind uh, Baptists now looking back to, to retrieve their older heritage. I think of... Um, you know, men like uh, James Renahan and Sam Renahan and Richard Barcellus, and I'm, there are many others, but uh, these are just folks that, that I think of right off the top of my head. Um, what are some practical steps that you think that Baptists um, can continue to take to retrieve their older heritage? And maybe this is a good time also to ask if there are any uh, particular books that Baptists can look to if they want to go uh, retrieve this older heritage, things that you find particularly helpful that you think other Baptists might find helpful as well? Well, you know, I would start with the basic documents of our tradition. And these are available in various, uh, you you mentioned the the Renahan family that have made a great contribution, I think, to retrieving some of this literature. I would start with the Confessions of Faith, uh, which are not very well known. Uh, we may know a contemporary confession, uh, but go back to those 17th century confessions of faith, which were hard won in great thought and debate and uh, put forth sometimes in the midst of persecution. They deserve our respect, and they open up the channels for how God can speak and illuminate our hearts and minds. Uh, There are places of fellowship that we can seek out one another, conferences and churches and gatherings. This is very deeply rooted in Baptist history, uh, what we call an association. That's a word not found in the New Testament, but it is a word that talks to the about the way in which Baptist congregations can come together in fellowship to praise and honor God and even to work together in the mission of the church the great missionary movements in which Baptists have been so involved, uh, they, are, they are things. And I would add one more thing in terms of where to read. Uh, the, the literature of Christian biography is uh, extremely important. I wrote a biography of William Carey, who is sometimes called the father of modern missions. He was, let me say it in quotes, a Reformed Baptist, or as he would say, a particular Baptist in the late 18th century, and established uh, a mission society in 1792, uh, to carry the gospel to, he called the heathen, those who had not heard the name of Jesus Christ. People like Carey in uh, the Judsons, uh, Adoniram and Ann Judson. If you've been brought up in a good Baptist church with good instruction, these will be names well known to you. But I dare say, uh, in in many of our 
circles today, uh, they're little known. We may know the name of John Bunyan, but how many people have actually read The Pilgrim's Progress? So I'm a big believer in going back to the classics. And let let me mention a series that I'm now involved with, with Robin and Holman Publishers, uh, on reprinting some of these great classics of the Christian faith. We started with Augustine, but we're including Baptist documents too. Uh, in order that we can present in clear, readable format some of the great treasures of Christian wisdom uh, that have been around forever but have often been neglected. So uh, these are some practices, I would say, the covenants, the catechisms, the confessions uh, that deserve to be brushed off and read with new vigor and new energy. I think that'll draw us closer to Christ, for one thing, and it'll draw us closer to one another. That's great. Now, one thing I wanted to to circle back on that you mentioned earlier about, uh, I guess, a Baptist distinctive compared to a Calvinist position was the role of the civil magistrate, where Baptists didn't view uh, a need or a place for the civil magistrate to enforce the first table of the law. And I think I've seen a rise in what I guess is called theonomy among Baptists even, in contemporary in the contemporary climate, we actually recently talked to Dr. Tom Hicks. I don't know how many weeks ago, an episode on on the podcast about Baptist and theonomy, and there's a strange growth of that where it's almost like they they truly think you sh- the civil magistrate should enforce the first table of the law. So, I guess maybe in a short way, is that possibly consistent with Baptist theology at all? And should Baptists, if they want to remain Baptist, uh, push back on that? We should push back on that. Um, Here's a place where general Baptists, that is more Arminian and more Calvinistic Baptists, ought to be together. We don't see eye to eye on a number of things. But on this question, I think what Thomas Helwes wrote in The Mystery of Iniquity, a little tract that was published on an underground press in London in 1612, uh, let them be heretics, Jews, Catholics, whatever. It pertains not to the civil authority to enforce the dictates of faith. Uh, It was a statement, really the first statement in English, of absolute religious freedom for everybody everywhere. Now, uh, this does not mean, let me go on to say, that there is no place for civil governance or for the role of a magistrate uh, in civil society. I think Romans 13 and many other texts in Scripture point in that direction. We're told to pray for those in authority. So uh, I'm not, uh, I'm neither a pacifist, although at one time in my life I was attracted to pacifism for a while. As I read more and thought more deeply about it, it seemed to me that was not a tenable position. Uh, I'm I'm not a I'm not a pacifist, and, and neither am I an anarchist, because I believe that God has, as Paul says, ordained the civil authority uh, for special purposes. Among those purposes is not the establishment of a church, or the enforcement of civil sanctions against those who violate principles of faith. Uh, And so I stand with another Reformed Baptist that is often quoted. uh, He was a strong Calvinist all the way. In fact, he was a stronger Calvinist than he was a Baptist. He only stayed a Baptist for about six months. His name is Roger Williams. He was the founder of the Rhode Island Colony and of what is called the First Baptist Church in America, the First Baptist Church of Providence. 
1639. I like what Roger Williams said about liberty of conscience and something that uh, we need to recover and reclaim. So I don't know a lot about theonomy. I know there's some good godly people who teach that, uh, who are reformed in lots of ways in their theology. Uh, But I would say, come with me and have a cup of coffee, and let's talk more deeply about the role of the state in Christian life. Dr. George, as we uh, begin to wind down here, I just first want to thank you for for giving us some time uh, today. This has been great, Uh, but I do want to ask you one final question, Uh, and you've you've been studying Baptist history and Baptist theology for um, much of your life, so I think you would probably be the best person to ask this question to, and that is, what area uh, of Baptist studies do you think are under-researched? So for any students who are looking to um, maybe do PhD studies or um, to explore things further, um, what what areas do you think need more attention when it comes to Baptist history and theology? Let me mention a couple of my friends who are actually supervising doctoral studies in in Baptist life. One is Michael Haken. I don't know if you all know Michael Haken. Uh, He's associated with the Southern Baptist uh, Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, a Canadian scholar. Uh, Michael has uh, really focused in, I would call it, on the spirituality of the Baptist movement the prayer life of some of the great figures like Samuel Pierce and others. Uh, So I love what Michael is writing. Uh, Tom Nettles is another friend of mine who's written a lot in this area. Uh, I think any of the great classical disciplines of the Christian faith or the theological curriculum deserve further study and application by Baptists. Old Testament, New Testament, ethics is a wide open area today. Theology itself. So uh, digging deeper into those sources and looking at some of the great uh, theologians of the past that we've kind of ignored. Uh, One of the first books I published uh, with my friend David Dockery was called Baptist Theologians. And it was a collection of, I think, 35 essays in the first edition that covered a lot of people who had thought deeply from different perspectives about the Baptist movement. I learned a lot by coming up close to some of them. And so I'd recommend that kind of deep historical theological study of our own tradition. Mark Knoll, my friend Mark Knoll, uh, (laughs) when he reviewed that book, he gave it a very good review. He said, when I read this book, I I thought it was a contradiction in terms. Baptist, theologian? Uh, we think of Baptists as evangelists, as missionaries, as pastors, but theologians. Uh, but Mark ca- came to see, and I give him full credit, uh, that there is a tradition here to be explored. There's a heritage to be reclaimed. And I think that will benefit and edify the people of God. That's super helpful. So uh, along those lines, I, I am curious. The It's almost unfortunate that Baptists and theologians don't go together do you have any recommendations for remedies for how our churches and I guess the academy as well in Baptist life can strengthen our theological acumen? Reading and writing, uh, those basic skills would help. Uh, if you're a pastor, I would say do a sermon series on this material. It's wonderful to see how God's Word has been preached and claimed by His people through the ages. Another project I've been involved in is called the Reformation Commentary on Scripture. It's 29 volumes of scriptural comment from the 16th century. Now, it's not uh, particularly just only to the Baptists. We cover the whole 
front, but looking at how the Bible has been read, how the Bible has been interpreted in Baptist life, in Baptist history, is would be a wonderful uh, exercise and a way, again, of building up the church. Uh, let me say I'm, I'm actually more concerned uh, with churches reclaiming this and getting on board with this than I am schools and universities and divinity schools, like where I spent most of my life. We have a role to play, too. But it really comes to bear in a way that touches the life of God's people when it gets down to the pastoral level, to the preaching level, to the teaching and catechizing level. So that's where I hope the emphasis can be placed. Well, Dr. George, this has been this has been superb. So I, I've enjoyed our time tremendously, and I imagine all of our listeners have as well. So one final question before we wrap up is, do you have, I mean, you've mentioned a couple of writing projects that you've got, this B&H series that you're working on and some other things. What is it that is possibly coming out in the next year or two that we should be on the lookout for? Well, I'm so far behind on all my writing commitments, I can't answer that question or make my editor <laughs> mad at me. Uh, the The project I mentioned from Rolman Holman is called Theological Foundations, and I think we hope to uh, release four volumes uh, in the next year or so. Uh, and we're working with the editors to get that in shape right now. Uh, one of them is on the Baptist missions experience. So we'll have Fuller and Carey and Judson and some of the great Baptist names, uh, but also some of, some of the Baptist hymns that have been a part of our tradition. And some of the other volumes deal with other figures. We, believe it or not, have a volume on John Wesley. And uh, John Wesley is a person who we, with whom we have very basic disagreements on some things, but who we have to say in retrospect, God in his own sovereignty chose to use in a remarkable way. And one of the great books there on, that I've found uh, is by Ian Murray, a great Reformation scholar, a Calvinist, called Wesley and Those Who Followed Him. So we're going to have a volume on Wesley. We'll have one on St. Augustine and... Uh, Calvin, of course, we're going to reprint Calvin's commentary on Romans with a new introduction. So those are the first four. I think the, the press would like for this series to extend to about 16 volumes, and it will include other Baptist voices as well. Well, Dr. George, thank you so much for taking your time to talk with us about this. I know our listeners have been blessed. I know me and Brandon enjoyed it as well. So thank you. And for all of you who are listening, I, I commend you to find Dr. George's material. I mean, he's written a ton. I'll link to a bunch of it in the show notes. Uh, I commend all of his work to you. I know uh, The Theology of the Reformers. I think that that's the title of the book. I got that at T4G. <laughs> I don't know how many years ago it was now, probably like five or six years. Uh, tremendous resource. So I've been blessed by all of his stuff. So I, I commend it all. So find it, read it. You'll be edified. You'll be strengthened. You'll be encouraged. And uh, for those who've been listening as well, we thank you for tuning in to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon.